Um, someone said Inception up the back there um, when we had uh, Ken and Haven and YWAM person together, right? Um, I had contemplated um, showing that clip at the end of Inception with the spinning top, uh, which if you know the movie, the top just spins, 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 and you're waiting for it to fall over and then it just cuts, which I think is like the book of Jonah because you kind of wonder what's going to happen next and you don't get that. Um, but then I thought, no one knows the movie Inception. It's so old now. But anyway... <laughs> I didn't do that, but uh, here we are. We are at the end, uh, so let's bring it home. Let's do a little recap of what we've seen so far in the book of Jonah. Uh, Jonah chapter 1, saw that Jonah runs, runs to Tarshish. Uh, Jonah chapter 2, Jonah prays from inside the fish. Jonah 3, Jonah goes, he gets card, uh, he gets vomited out onto the dry land. Uh, and so here we are in number 4, uh, where Jonah hates is a strong word, uh, but let's, uh, let's get into it. I'm going to pray for us, uh, and then we'll, we'll get stuck in. Father, thanks that we've been able to uh, move through the book of Jonah this weekend, uh, that we've seen your character unfold, uh, we've seen the character of uh, Jonah unfold, uh, but Lord, we pray for ourselves that we might, in a sense, see ourselves in the story, or that we might examine our own character and see how it is that it does or doesn't line up with, with you and your character. I pray most of all that we would see your great mercy and compassion towards a world that is in rejection of you. And so I pray that we would have the same desire that you have to see people come to know you and to enjoy your forgiveness and to have that hope of eternal life that you offer through your Son. So I pray that you would be transforming us uh, you would be moulding us and changing us by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the years, I've had some involvement in the kick conference that happens every year in Katoomba. So you've got the uh, kick jumper on this morning. Uh, if you don't know what kick is, I'm sure many of you do, but if you don't know what it is, it's a conference aimed at that sort of high school age bracket and it runs from a Friday night through to the Sunday morning. And there's good talks, there's good music, generally it's kind of a lot of fun. And when I was in year 11, so a long time ago now, but when I was in year 11 I went to my first kick event and I wasn't a Christian, but I remember kind of being pretty struck by this massive event, like I was from Tamworth, and so going to this massive event where there's a couple of thousand uh, guys my age there, and it was all pretty exciting. Uh, I did think the music was a bit over the top and a bit weird and why do we have to sing so much? Uh, that was going through my head. Uh, but the rest of it was okay. And if you go to kick on the, uh, on the Saturday night, and this is what happened when I was there, I don't know if it still happens, but uh, every year on the Saturday night there is often a particularly sharp talk that challenges all the young people there to make a commitment to Jesus. And so it really lays out the gospel message clearly and it asks people that if they want to respond, then to do so. And so the way that that response happens is that, does this still happen? People get up and, yep, yeah, right, uh, every year, very good. So people, at the end of the Saturday night talk, you, you get up, if you want to make a response, you get up and you walk out the back of the auditorium and you go and chat with some older, more mature Christians and if you want to make a commitment there, you can do so or you can just sort of chat about stuff. And I did that in year 11. I got up and I walked out the back of the, of the kick event and whilst I didn't become a Christian that evening, it was sort of one other step on the journey to me eventually becoming a Christian. 
A few years later, I went back to Kick as a leader for my youth group in Tamworth. And for whatever reason, we must have been very late as we got to the, the event because we were sitting in the very back row uh, on the Saturday night. And uh, speaker's up there giving his, his talk, as they do every year, and encouraging the people that if they want to make a commitment, to stand up and head out the back and go and talk to someone. And so we were in the very back row of the auditorium and we got to see just how many people were kind of streaming past us. And there would have been, I don't know, 100, 200 people just streaming out the back. And I couldn't help but think to myself, like, why do we do this? Uh, I mean, do these guys actually really know yet who God is? Uh, Why are we giving them a chance to become followers of Jesus now? Because, I mean, presumably a lot of them really didn't understand. They probably didn't actually really appreciate God's kindness. And I thought to myself, like, this is just a waste of time. No, I didn't. Of course I didn't. Come on. Took you a while to kind of come around then. (laughs) I mean, it, it would be very odd, wouldn't it, if that would be my attitude? If I sat there thinking, oh, this is a disaster, isn't it? That would be very odd as someone who had been rescued from my own sin to then turn around and think, well, I don't want these other guys uh, to be rescued. It would be very weird if that was actually my attitude. But that's kind of what we see here in Jonah. You heard there from the reading that that's the place that Jonah finds himself. At the end of chapter 3 this morning, we saw that the Assyrians... These people that Jonah does not like, they repented of their sin. It said that they gave up their evil and when God saw that, he gave up up the destruction on them, which is great news. It is good news. But now as we turn to chapter 4, Jonah is upset about it. And what we find quite literally in uh, verse 1 is this. But to Jonah, this seemed very evil. That's the word there. Quite literally, that's what the verse says. But to Jonah, this seemed very evil, and he became angry. Jonah just witnessed the, what I suspect is, the greatest turning to God in the whole Bible, maybe even in the history of the world. I I don't know of any uh, other one beyond 120,000 people. But what God just did on that day to Jonah seemed very evil. Oh yeah, the Ninevites, they're evil. But what God did was very evil evil. And we should have some sympathy for Jonah, maybe, or at least some understanding uh, with Jonah here. Like, it's kind of one thing, if I see a bunch of teenagers that I don't know becoming uh, Christians, it's one thing, but uh, it'd be quite another if I saw an enemy of mine becoming a Christian. And something else that might be going on, it's not in the text here, but some people ponder this, something else that might be going on in the back of Jonah's mind is that if Assyria survives more than likely Israel will not. If God doesn't actually intervene here and wipe these people from the face of the earth, it could just spell the end for the people of Israel, which is exactly what happens 30 years after this event. We've giggled at Jonah a little bit as we've uh, walked through this book and we're meant to have a little giggle at times, but at the same moment, this is a deadly serious thing, that Jonah is asked here to come to grips with God's love for Jonah's enemies. And that's a really significant thing that God is asking him to do, to come to grips with God's love for Jonah's enemies. It is a genuine struggle. 
I don't know if you have an enemy, maybe you don't use that word or that language, but I imagine there's some people in your life that if they became a Christian, maybe you'd be a bit uncomfortable about that. Maybe there's people in your life that you think, actually, they don't deserve it for whatever they've done. Someone like that just doesn't actually deserve it and they shouldn't get the chance. And it's possible for us as Christians to have strong feelings like that. But this entire book, and, and especially this chapter, is challenging us to have the same character as God. That's what we've been saying this whole time. And regardless to the cost to ourselves, how uncomfortable it might make us feel... This book is leading us to have the same heart that God has for people who don't know him. And so let's uh, get stuck into chapter 4 here. And if that's going on in our hearts, then let's trust that God is going to transform us by his word to have the same heart that he has. So let's have a a look at verse 1 again. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong or very evil, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. And here at this moment, we've been discussing it all weekend, but it's at this moment that it all becomes clear to us, isn't it? Jonah is, he's not running away just because he's scared of the Ninevites. He's not running away because he thinks he's a bad preacher. No, no, he's running away because he's trying to stop the Ninevites experiencing God's grace. He doesn't want God to relent from his anger. Notice what he goes on to say next. He says, I knew, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I knew it. You are always like this. (laughs) It's funny. What kind of a God? You just rescue people, you give them what they don't deserve. It's so typical. And this is actually... Uh, a part of the Bible that every Israelite would have known. Jonah quotes something here back to God that comes up over and over again in the Bible. It's actually the most quoted Old Testament verse in the Old Testament, right? So it's the most repeated thing that you find through the Old Testament in various ways. Because it's just such a great, wonderful, clear description of God's character. To give you the background on on where this comes from, so uh, Exodus 34, but to give you the background of that story when you first hear it, Israel, book of Exodus, so they've just been rescued from Egypt, but it doesn't take them long to stuff it all up, right? So not long after that, in Exodus 32, they make that golden calf out of gold. Not golden calf out of gold, of course they do. But they make that golden idol, uh, it's a calf. And after that, through this interaction with Moses, long story there, but through this interaction with Moses, God does not destroy the people. And he promises that he's going to be kind to them. And so Moses asks God, like, who are you? What kind of God are you? What is your character like? Like, you really could have destroyed these people, but you haven't. So who are you? Reveal yourself to me. Show me more of who you are. In Exodus 34, God says to him, uh, God says to Moses, yeah, I am gracious and compassionate. I'm slow to anger. Not that I don't have anger or won't bring anger, but I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in love. I'm a God who relents from sending calamity. That's who I am. I'm a God who gives people what they do not deserve. I'm the exact opposite of what you would expect from all the other gods. 
And so this self-description of God from, from Exodus 34 just comes up over and over again, and every Israelite would have known it, and Jonah would have known it. The whole identity of Israel is built on this, and Jonah, he loves that story for himself, but he hates it for everyone else, and he especially hates it for the Ninevites. And so much so, in verse 3, he says, because of that, now, Lord, take my, away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. In other words, Jonah would rather be dead than live in a world where God acts like that. Uh, it's, not, it's not the first time he's had a death, death wish. Uh, back in chapter 1, the sailors threw him overboard. That was his death wish. They threw him overboard to what everybody thought would have been likely death. And here it becomes very clear to us that Jonah would rather be dead than see people like that walk free. That's what's going on in Jonah's heart. But, verse 4, the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? It's really similar to what God asks Cain in the Cain and Abel story. Now, if I was God, thank goodness I'm not, but if I was God and, you know, as I said this morning, I'm the police of the world, so I just would have zapped Jonah right then, I reckon. Like, I don't need prophets like you, mate. I'll just get another one. That's fine. Just bring on the next one. That's what I would have done. But not God, because he's patient and he's compassionate and he's slow to anger. He's giving Jonah, again, he's giving Jonah what he doesn't deserve. He's giving him a chance to wake up and change. At first, he used that violent storm in chapter one. Now it's a gentle conversation. Is it right for you to be angry, Jonah? And then notice what Jonah actually says to the question at the end of verse 4, nothing, nothing, he just ignores the question, like he did back in chapter 1, you remember, the sailors asked him questions, he just ignored them, Cain actually ignores the question in Genesis 4, and so God tries another tactic, again, doesn't just give up on him, tries another tactic, if Jonah's not going to answer the question directly, let's kind of zero in on him in another, in another way. So verse 5, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. If you're going east in the Bible, often you're not in a good place. Okay? So Adam and Eve, they are kicked out of the garden to go east. Cain, after he murders his brother Abel, he goes even further east. Uh, it's possible here that when you go east, you are heading away from God. Seems to be a theme that you can track through the Bible. And when Jonah got there, it says that he made himself a shelter, he sat in its shade, and he waited to see what would happen to the city. So, let's picture Jonah here. So, he's grumpy, he's stormed out, he, he's found a place where he can see the city, and I don't know if he's perched up on a little hill or whatever, but he builds this shelter for himself, and that might suggest to us that he's planning on being here for a while. Maybe he's waiting for that 40 days is up. Presumably it hasn't ended yet. And so maybe Jonah is thinking, well, this repentance could be very short-lived. And so if I just wait him out, maybe I will get to see them obliterated. So he's sitting under this shelter and maybe it wasn't quite adequate enough. And so God helps him out a bit in verse 6. It says, then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it to grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and ease his discomfort. And Jonah was, notice this, Jonah was 
very happy about the plant. This is kind of the most, conf- I don't know if I want to use the word confusing, but the, the, the part of the story we need to really pay attention to to what's going on, okay? Because there's a lot going on here. He's very happy about the plant. So in Jonah's eyes, back in verse 1, the forgiveness of Nineveh was very evil. But now he's very happy about the plant. Now what's God doing here to Jonah, for Jonah? What's, what's the point of all of this? He's giving Jonah a taste of grace. He's reminding Jonah of what it is like to be on the receiving end of God's favour. God is doing something here for Jonah that he doesn't need to do. He's being kind and he's being compassionate to him by providing the plant. And so Jonah, he gets this little plant to help shade his head from the sun. Now, looking out today, there's a few of us who would recognise the benefits of that more than others. So Jonah gets this sort of taste of God's grace and mercy. He gets this undeserved kindness shown to him through the plant. But then in verse 7, at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. If the, if the shady plant is a taste of grace for Jonah, then the worm and the wind and the sun is a taste of judgment. And Jonah hates it, and he'd rather die. God is trying to teach Jonah a lesson here. Jonah, you love it when grace is shown to you. It makes you very happy. You just saw that with the little plant. It makes you very happy, but you hate it when it's shown to your enemies. And Jonah, you hate it when judgment is shown to you. The plant was taken away, your head's burnt, you've got the wind coming at you. You hate it when judgment is shown to you, but you love it when it's shown to your enemies. Jonah, is it really right for you to be angry when your enemy is forgiven? But as we know, Jonah doesn't want to kind of answer that question. He already ignored it that first time. And so God asks him something slightly different in verse 9. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. In other words, Jonah, like this plant, like, come on, it's really nothing. It's certainly not worth being that emotional over. You shouldn't care that much about this plant, Jonah, but you do. And Jonah, if you cared that much about this little plant, if you've been that concerned over something as insignificant as this, Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? Dot, dot, dot. That's it. That's, That's it. Cliffhanger. And we're just left with that question. Jonah's left with the question. We are left with the question. But God is saying to Jonah, Jonah, come on, like out there, there are thousands and thousands of people who are walking around with no idea. They're walking around and they are none wiser to the fact that judgment is coming to them. 
And it's not that they're unintelligent, Jonah. It's not that they can't kind of grasp the concept of God. It's not that they're lesser humans in any way. It's just that they don't know. They just don't know any better. They don't know their right hand from their left. And Jonah, you are far too concerned about yourself. You are far too concerned about your own comfort. You you only care about the goodness shown to you. You couldn't care about someone else. You care more about this plant that doesn't even live more than a day than you do about a whole city of people. Are you really one of my people, Jonah? Do you really share my character? And so the book ends with that question mark to ask all of us that same thing. And there are thousands and thousands of people walking around the Camden Haven area, mid-north coast, whatever, whatever you call it, and they just, they just don't know. It's not that they're unintelligent. It's not that they can't grasp the concept of God. It's just in a sense they just don't know. They don't know their right hand from their left. And in the New Testament, we see something similar. We're told that Jesus stops to consider an entire city as well. It's a bit like Jonah looking towards Nineveh. Jesus looks towards Jerusalem and he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets and kill those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Or on another occasion, he he comes to Jerusalem and he weeps over it and he says, if only you had known today what would bring you peace but it has been shielded from your eyes. They just, they just didn't know any better until someone brought them the word of the Lord. It's not that they're unintelligent. They just need the word of the Lord brought to them. And so friends, this character of God that we see here in Jonah, that we see in the Lord Jesus, of this intense desire to see people accept his mercy, should captivate and be true of our hearts as well. This whole book is here to ask us that question. Does our character match God's character? And we've seen so far that for Jonah it doesn't. Uh, We don't really know what happens to Jonah after this. I mean, maybe he changes, maybe he doesn't. We don't really know. Uh, But let's not worry too much about Jonah. Instead, I think we should fix our eyes upon Jesus, the one who resolutely set out for Jerusalem, the one who, for the joy set before him of seeing sinners reconciled to God, endured the cross, the one who, instead of enjoying the leafy shade of heaven, humbled himself and made himself nothing to become obedient to God to death on the cross. Let's fix our eyes on the one who in the Garden of Gethsemane would say, actually, not my will, but yours be done. See, Jesus is the anti-Jonah. He is the one who demonstrates a care and a concern for other people that has cost him more than just his own discomfort, cost him more than just his own awkwardness, but ultimately cost him his own life on the cross, didn't it? And so the question for us, friends, is that should we not have the same concern for those people that we know that the Father might forgive them for they know not what they do? Let's pray.
Now, Father, it is, uh, it is easy for us to uh, receive a, a rescue for ourselves and a salvation for ourselves and uh, know and love that, uh, but, but not have the same heart when it comes to other people. Uh, Lord, we see so clearly across your whole word that you have a heart for the lost, uh, that you hold out your hands for uh, the world to come to know you and the forgiveness that you offer and the life that you promise. And I pray that you would continue, uh, not just today, but throughout our, our, our whole lives, to mould and shape us, to transform and change us, to become more and more like your son, uh, the one who did not do his own will, uh, but did yours, uh, that for the love of other people would go all the way to the cross and would bear the sin of the whole world. I pray that we might have a heart like that so that we can reflect your character. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.